Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 38. I'm your host, Dan Holzman, and on this podcast we have a very special guest, a man with amazing feats of skill and feats of dexterity. I'm talking, of course, about the amazing feat of Pete Irish, the amazing footbagger and juggler. But before we get to our interview, let's thank our sponsors. First off, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. You can find out about this great group of jugglers by going to juggle.org. Find about how to join the group and attend their annual festival, which next year will be in Cedar Rapids, July 10th through the 16th. Also, check out my personal coaching site, braindrizzles.com. I'm still looking for a couple more full-time students, so see if you're right fit for the Brain Drizzles experience by going to braindrizzles.com. All right, no more preamble, no more rambling of any kind. Let's get right to our podcast with the great Peter Irish. Welcome to podcast number 38. I have a very special guest. Welcome, Pete Irish. How you doing, Pete? I'm doing great. How are you, Dan? Good. I hear exactly your life is amazing. That's what you told me. So let's start with how amazing is your life and what makes it so amazing? Well, yeah, I'm living the dream, Dan. My life is going really well these days. I can't, don't have any major complaints. I'm in a really healthy place. Living a really healthy lifestyle these days, taking care of myself on pretty much all the levels that I can and working out a lot, eating well, doing meditation every day, doing my breathing exercises, really happy, really well-adjusted. It sounds terrible, Pete. It sounds terrible. I know, you know, almost <laughs> a little boring. I spend a lot of time doing healthy things. I don't really party that much anymore. Don't drink beer much anymore. So what, why did you make these changes? What Was it something about your career, your life? What drove you to this new place in your life? Uh, maybe a, a few different things. I'm over 40 now, and I've spent my a big chunk of my life Indulging in things that maybe weren't the best for me, although, you know, I've lived a pretty balanced lifestyle overall. I think the older I get, the more I've just kind of, I think maybe when I hit 40 years old, I realized that was a good time to kind of reevaluate everything in my life and um, where I'm going, what I want to dedicate my energy to for the next 40 years and what I want to create with my life. It's interesting. I think maybe, I don't know if it was the same for you, but I think when I hit 40, you realize that you're not a kid anymore and you only have maybe a, a limited amount of time left on the planet. Even if you got 50 more years, it's like, well, do I want to drink beer for the next 50 years or do I want to use the time that I have wisely to achieve what I can achieve with the rest of my time and uh, age gracefully, and live a healthy lifestyle, do uh, achieve some of the things that maybe I've been thinking about doing that I haven't really done yet, or do I just want to, you know, mess around? Turning forty was like a good a good thing for me, and uh, all of you listeners are really gonna enjoy appreciating that when it happens for you guys. So hopefully, it'll do what it did for me. Made me reevaluate everything, and uh, I just made some, you know, good. I think I made the right decisions. Well, it sounds like when you say you're in an amazing place, Yeah, uh, you're living a healthy lifestyle, you're working a lot. Do you feel that your lifestyle before was sort of holding you back from, from achieving the things you wanted? I feel like I've achieved a lot and I'm not unhappy with my lifestyle up until now by any means. I think I've, I've done pretty well for myself overall. I do what I love to do and I have been for a long time. You know, I've been lucky enough to be a creative artist and sustain myself up until now for the most part. And so I really can't complain about that. I think I just had to do some fine tuning on my, some of my habits or some of my um, 
attitudes in life. Not that they were bad, but they could just could have been a little bit better. So yeah, I just kind of came to a point in my life where I decided like, I really want to apply myself to reach whatever highest potential I can for the rest of my time here on earth. I think uh, just the, the changes that I've made in the, even in the last year have really made a, a really deep effect and it's worked. So uh, I'm, I'm really happy with the way my life's going right now. I'm not really complaining. Well, before we look back, let's look forward then. What kind of uh, things are you hoping to achieve moving forward with this new lifestyle? Are there particular goals that you're, that you see on the horizon for yourself? Yeah, I think I always have some goals. As far as performing goes, my show is going well. My my act is in a good place. However, I have a lot of ideas to make it way better. I'm really inspired to just become a better performer and a better artist, even at age 46. I'm, I'm almost amazed at myself that I'm as excited as I am at this point in my career about improving and being a better performer. As far as my health goes, you know, I'm in, I'm in the gym, I'm working out with weights. Uh, I'm trying to be super healthy and I'm trying to be able to do the things that I want to do into a really old age. You know, I'd like to keep performing until my body doesn't want to do it anymore. And I don't really see much limit to that. If I take care of myself, I think Francis Brunn did his act till he was in his eighties or something. I think it was maybe in his 70s. I saw him uh, quite in his quite later 60s. Uh, I don't think he quite got into his 80s. I think he died in his 80s. But I see where you're going with this. Obviously, the foot bag and the, and the foot juggling might be more strenuous. Are you thinking about sort of modifying your style as you get older or you're trying to maintain that style of juggling? Um, definitely modifying it. And I have modified it over the years. I, I think I'm trying to progress intelligently and my body doesn't necessarily want to do the things that it was doing in its twenties. Now, I certainly feel the effects of what I do, which is my knees, my ankles, even the non-footbag stuff on my show. I'm leaping up onto the rollabola, you know, I'm balancing chairs. And so I feel, I feel the effects of, uh, I'm, I'm pushing myself. I'm really physical in my show which is great. I think it helps me stay young. It helps me stay on the edge, but also I can feel the effects on my body way more than, than I have in, you know, say 10 years ago. I'm working on ways to continue doing that stuff, but not necessarily put as much strain and stress on my body. However, I still do put a, a fair amount of strain and stress on my body, but maybe in a, in a way that, that does help me stay, keep my body in, in really good shape. So now you're currently in Boulder. Are you sort of you doing shows at the Pearl Street Mall? Is that your current location? That is my current location. Yeah, Boulder, Colorado is my hometown now, and I'm working Pearl Street all the time. Even now, uh, mostly just weekends now. During uh, the summer, spring, summer, fall, it's pretty much every day. If I'm not working other gigs, I'm out doing street performing because that's it's so available to me. It's ten minutes from where I live. So that's kind of been my home base for the last few years. I really love Boulder. It's, there's a lot of cool things about it. There's a great circus arts community. We have the Boulder Circus Center here. There's um, a really great group of street performers here, all different types of circus artists, comedians. Boulder's just full of creative people. It's uh, the mountains, Rocky Mountains are right here. The weather's beautiful. There's really not a whole lot that I don't like about it. So I, it's kind of central to the, the country. I can go east. I can go west. But yeah, it's a really good, really good place to be. And what do you think the importance of having this sort of anchor of a street performing spot 
Do you find that really important for you to have a local pitch where you can kind of have a home base where you can also perform? Is that one of the reasons you chose Boulder? Yeah, it's funny. Um, it's kind of a whole story of how I ended up in Colorado. I didn't really plan to be here, but it just worked out perfectly. And having a home pitch for me is crucial because it allows me to perform pretty much every day. If I didn't have a home pitch, I probably wouldn't be doing as many shows, not nearly as many shows. Like sometimes I'm doing three to five shows a day, whereas if I'm just doing booked gigs, I'd be performing a lot less. So for me, having a home pitch, in a way, it forces you into a certain context for your show. There's certain things that you would do in a street show that maybe you wouldn't do on a stage or even at a festival. Uh, street performing is a whole different animal as far as performing goes. It's very specific. There's there's crowd psychology that you would use in street performing that you wouldn't use in other forms of performing, but it does keep me on my toes. It keeps me performing all year round. It allows me to work on new stuff and uh, and street performing is really challenging too. So I think um, when I go from the street to other things like a stage or even a festival, um, I feel like it's way easier. Now, I think street performing actually is one of the most difficult forms of variety entertainment out there, even though maybe it doesn't get as much respect as other forms, but it's a really good training ground. It's good. It's like being in the gym all the time. You know, you're, it keeps you on your toes for sure. So for me, and it's fun. It's fun. I really love to do it. Do you think that somehow it holds you back as far as the creation of your act? Do you think it sort of, sort of fosters a particular style that might hold you back uh, as you move forward in your career? Yes, I could say yes. If your whole goal is to be a street performer, then you're going to fit into a certain style of show. There's no doubt about that. Um, and that you really have to do certain things in a street show that will help you make money on the street because you're just working for tips. If you're not open to letting those type of things go, it can definitely hold you back. And maybe just the convenience of having a, a home pitch in some ways can hold you back because the work is always there. You know, I can just get in my car, drive 10 minutes and do a show and make money. I don't necessarily have to, I don't even have to book shows if I didn't want to. Although uh, I have other aspirations besides being a street performer. And I, you know, I work enough gigs that are not on the street to make sure I'm not completely locked into a street type show. Although, um, it's what I do the most. So I really have to be conscious of that and do my best to not let it hold me back. Cause it's easy. I think it's, if it would be easy just to kind of stay in that context of, uh, of a show, a street show context, which if you watch enough street shows, you see similarities in structure, things that every street performer does to make money out there. And those are the type of things that can hold you back. Well, it seems to be sort of more of a straightforward style of getting the audience involved. Like, do you want to see another trick? Do you want to see me throw it higher? You know, kind of more of a call and response. It, it doesn't really foster maybe as much subtlety as yeah. a stage work. Yeah, I would say for sure. It's, it's a lot of crowd psychology. It's a lot of controlling the crowd. You're telling what the, the crowd what to do the whole time during a street show. And at the end of the, of the show, you tell the crowd to pay you. And if they like you enough, if you've made them laugh, if you've entertained them enough, then they just follow your commands. Yeah, it definitely, um, there's a structure that you tend to follow. The good street performers, if, you're, if you want to make money at it, 
you're going to kind of fall into certain patterns. And so um, it does keep you from more subtle aspects of your show. So, so you feel that by sort of getting the people to follow your directions over the course of the show, that when you get to the end and give them the final direction to give you money, that psychology-wise they're more apt to give you money because they've been following your directions this whole time. Indeed, yeah. It, it's, it's all crowd psychology, street performing. And it's, it's like uh, you create sort of a uh, collective consciousness with the crowd. And it's really a, a fascinating study in psychology. It can, uh, you can see the applications in general society, I think, for street performing. If you, it, you're, you know, you're the focal point of a group of people and you get them to like you and you get them to basically follow your commands. And when, when crowds come together, it's sort of a form of hypnosis in a way. So it's not like you're hypnotizing people, but it's there's certain principles that you're using of crowd psychology and street performing that you wouldn't be using on a stage or in, in a theater or something like that necessarily. But like for street performing, it's definitely um, way more specific in that regard. And how important do you find the money pitch? Was that something you worked quite a bit on before you kind of hit on the right solution for that? Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's, it's always sort of a work in progress. It can always get better, but it's very important. It's definitely an important aspect of street performing, the money pitch, because you can have a great show and people can like you, but uh, if you don't ask for a $20 bill, you're probably not going to get one. If you don't ask for a 50 or a $100 bill, you're not going to get one. But if you do, then they're, they're, they, they do come into the hat. So there's subtle ways that, you know, you can implant those ideas in, in your show, little hints, uh, money hints throughout the show. And then how you ask for money at the end of a street show is, is a pretty important thing. So I think all people have a different way to do it. And, but you'll, you'll see the successful ones have similarities as well. And it's really about asking for the money, the big bills. Because um, when you get to the point where you're doing shows and you're not getting change anymore, then you're improving it and you're getting more $5 bills and $1 bills and et cetera. And then that's the whole point. That's how you really can make some money rather than just like, oh, just put, a, you know, put some change in my hat at the end of the show. You're not going to make any money doing that. Well, you kind of see how the, the $1 tip uh, does not add up very quickly. That the idea, a lot of people still assume that $1 is a good tip. Uh, for a street performer to get. Yeah, and you you just educate your crowd. You say, yeah, basically I say like a $5 bill, like that's where you start. And some people even don't even mention a five. Some people start with, you should tip me 10. Basically I say, you know, a $5 bill is like buying me a beer after the show. And most people would buy me a beer just for my hacky sack tricks alone. But here I did all this other stuff. So I think minimum this show is worth a 10, but if you really liked it, you should drop me a 20 because I'm worth it. And if you've really entertained the crowd, then they'll agree with you most of the time. Now, do you find also that the community there is part of the appeal, that the, the sort of hang with your fellow street performers is a unique experience? I know for me, that's a big part of the attraction. Uh, who's your gang out there and, and what do you think you get from the other performers? Yeah, yeah, the crew of street performers is definitely a big part of it, and uh, it's kind of like my family, my friends here. They're, they're all really great people for the most part. They're the people that you know you can relate to the most. They're out there every day with you. We share the experiences of what's happening in each other's shows. You know, when you're working the street, you watch each other's back. We got a great community of street performers out here, 
They're awesome people. You know, we have some really old school, legendary performers out here, like the Zip Code Man, David Ross, Ross Dyker, who's been out on Pearl Street Mall for 25 years. And could you describe his act for us, Pete? Yeah, the Zip Code Man. So he's, uh, he's kind of a genius. And basically, you tell him your zip code, and he tells you the town that you live in, where you ate lunch, where you went to school, all kinds of information about any little town, not only in the United States, but throughout the, the world. Like I see him every day hitting zip codes and postal codes in places like Pakistan or Africa, India, little towns in India. He's traveled to all these places, he's traveled to most every little town in, in the country and can tell you something about it. He's traveled all over the world having crazy experiences. And so it's fun to have guys like that around with really unique shows and they're just unique people. We have some like super really talented up and coming guys like uh, my buddy Sam Malcolm, who was in the finals of IJA this year, who's a monster juggler and just super funny, very, very talented guy, one of my best friends in the world. It's really good to have people who inspire you who are, he's like Sam, for example, is still early on in his career, and but he's just crushing it. And you can just see the potential and he's going to go places and do things. And uh, he's just so funny and he's, he's really open and willing to work with other performers. We're always kind of working on each other's shows. We're watching each other's shows, giving each other notes. Think, oh, I thought of a line for you. Why don't you try this line? Or what if you changed it up here and tried this and tried this? Or we'll try different things or uh, new new bits, and you always have people to kind of bounce that off of. So it's a great community. I mean, there's a bunch of other performers I could name, and uh, they're all super talented. They're all dedicated to it. For me, it's definitely one of the best things about being around here, the whole community. It's just a great bunch of great friends. Now you said sometimes you do three to five shows, sometimes you do less. What kind of changes on a day-to-day basis? Is it Do people come and go, or is there just less shows available? on a certain day. How does the structure work out there as far as the shows? It varies a lot. It, in the summertime, there's a lot of people coming through Boulder. They come into town to perform on Pearl Street Mall. Uh, like in the summertime, you can have up to a dozen acts working one pitch. And shows started around maybe 11 a.m. and they go in the summertime to like 10, 11 p.m. And it just really depends on how many people are there. We do a rotation, first come, first serve. We show up and the first person that shows up does the first show, and then we just go on from there. And so sometimes, like, less people show up, or in the springtime, you're going to get more shows because there's less people in town. In the fall, people start leaving, going back to their home home spots. Like now, for example, at, at the end of October, there's really only f- maybe four, four or five acts maximum that are really in town working hardcore every weekend and nowadays during the week it's it's pretty tough to get shows off now in boulder the uh the tourists come in around late may and they leave after labor day so or uh at the end of um first weekend of september so you know between the the end of may and the beginning of september you can pretty much do shows seven days a week if you want to so you're going to get more shows sometimes during the week less people will come out the weekends are always crowded but nowadays there's only a few people that are really working in town so there's more shows you can do although there's less people in town it's more locals 
but if the if the weather's nice, there's still shows. So uh, if you really want to be out there, you can. And what do you do as as winter heads in? As it gets colder and colder, do you have another sort of off season uh, type of circuit, or do you kind of hunker down? What's the what's this off season look like for you, Pete? Uh, it just depends on the year, really. If I have enough money saved up to hang around town, I will. I'll budget my money and live a pretty frugal lifestyle, and I'll really do a lot of my practicing and working on new material during the winter time. Other times I'll travel like down in Florida. Key West is a spot that's always stays warm, all that. I haven't been down to Key West, but a couple summers ago I went down to Clearwater Beach. There's some places you can travel to work if you want to during the winter. And during the winter I have a few other gigs booked that will help me get through the winter time. But you know, I do a lot of saving of my money and, and budgeting. Well, it seems like you live a very sort of not Spartan lifestyle, but it seems like things you're interested in aren't expensive things. Like I know you have a very deep interest in martial arts and qigong. Yeah. And uh, so do you find yourself just sort of being drawn to, to activities that are more physical based as opposed to things you have to spend a lot of money on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the things that I'm interested in life are things that uh, I can do with hardly any money. I mean, yeah, I do. I have a strong practice of meditation and Qigong, martial arts, that type of thing. A lot of my free time and my fun goes to things that I, you know, being creative in other ways. All I really need for that in the wintertime is my gym membership. These days, I spend a lot of money on vinyl records. I just got a, a new record player, so I'm getting into vinyl again. But still, you know, that's like, I don't have any really extravagant expenses in my life. Uh, I do live a fairly simple lifestyle, which helps me get by. And, you know, I'm a single dude, so uh, I don't need a lot of money to to get by on. Uh, I'm not super poor or anything like that, but I'm also I don't spend a lot of money on stuff, really. I'm just more interested in experience, life experience and um, having fun on my own rather than paying a bunch of money for material goods or whatever. And what are some Peter Irish top vinyl picks? Can you give us three or four of uh, your, your your top choices? My top choices? For vinyl. For You're vinyl. Going old school. Yeah, well, you know, vinyl's huge now again. I've got an old collection that I had growing up, and but now I've been buying a lot of new vinyl. Like I just scored uh, Velvet Underground and Nico, that the album with the banana on it, the Andy Warhol, on yellow vinyl. Mm. That that's my newest purchase. I just got that. Let's see what else I got. What I'm playing a lot of. I'm into some weird obscure music. Like you guys might not have heard of stuff like a band called Current Ninety Three, which is kind of an underground British experimental music. Um, they release a lot of like really beautifully uh, done vinyl, like handmade editions and stuff like that. A band called Coil, which is an old experimental band that's starting to re-release their vinyl. And I, I, for me, like looking up records and finding records, it's kind of like treasure hunting in a way. Now, does uh, the music impact your juggling? Are these these music you like to juggle to, or do you like to listen to it in a different context? A little bit of both. You know, I definitely have my music I like to juggle to, but I also have a lot of music that I listen to that I you couldn't even really juggle to. Um, I'm pretty eclectic. You know, I listen to all kinds of different music. But I tend to juggle to certain types of music that are a little more, I like a lot of hip hop. I like to juggle the hip hop and maybe some stuff with some beats, some upbeat kind of energe energetic music to get me through, you know, several hours in the gym or whatever. What do you think of this uh, Kanye West? Do you get him? Are you, uh, 
a fan? I don't get it. Are you a fan? I'm not a Kanye fan, no. no. I think Kanye's got like one of the biggest ego egos on the planet. A lot of people think he's a genius, but the little music of Kanye I've heard, I'm not really that impressed by. And even if he was that great, he, his attitude kind of turns me off. It's like when you call yourself the greatest artist of your generation or something, I just have to laugh because uh, I don't know. I mean, what do you think of Kanye, Dan? Well, maybe part of someone's genius is getting other people to think they're a genius. Well, yeah, I, mean, I think you think he's good at marketing. He's good at getting attention and he's good at pissing people off, which some people say that that's not necessarily a bad thing for your business. Sure. No press is bad press. Exactly. Yeah. So even if you're making people angry, you're still, they're talking about you. So I think maybe Kanye is like a marketing genius. I mean, I'm sure he's, he's probably a really um, skilled rapper, but my, my hip hop tendencies go more old school kind of to like the 90s hip hop is sort of my thing. Wu-Tang Clan, that type of thing. But I'm sure a lot of people love Kanye. I think Wes Peden really loves Kanye. I know Jay Gilligan is a huge Kanye fan. I think it's amazing though if you, there was an appearance of him on uh, some music festival where he sings a Queen cover. He does Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. And yeah. until then you don't really realize that he really can't sing. I mean he really, he just really can't sing at all. <laughs> yeah. So, so the ability to have a career in music for someone who can neither sing nor dance uh, seems pretty, pretty unique. And, and I, I admire him for that. And there are definitely some, uh, I was working with Jay a couple of years ago at Moisture Festival, and he did a routine to a Kanye West song. And that made me kind of like it. I don't know if it was Jay's juggling or the music, but I, I did dig it. So at least I liked it in that context. Thinking about it now, there's, you know, Kanye's got a, a few catchy tunes and like, I'm not going to try to bash Kanye here. I mean, no, not the place for it. I mean, it's not the, the bash Conway podcast. <laughs> no, it's certainly not. However, he's made, he's definitely made some comments that I just have to laugh. And I mean, I guess you got to kind of almost admire him for his ability to stay in the public eye and like have people talk about him, which is, there's something to that. Well, you can relate it to juggling too in that. The best jugglers are not necessarily the most successful jugglers. I mean, if you look at just the pure technical skill of juggling, we have quite a few jugglers nowadays who are wonderful. I see people do amazing feats that I could never even imagine doing or, or anybody could imagine doing years ago. But the ability to translate it into sort of a career and a money-making occupation and getting people to be interested in it and pay you for it, like he has done, I don't know how you translate that to juggling where you say, okay, maybe I'm not the best juggler. I mean, hopefully you can at least juggle a little bit. Yeah. But how do you then convince people that, hey, I am the world's greatest juggler. Therefore, you should treat me as, as I'm the world's greatest juggler. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Um, there's a ton of amazing jugglers out there. But most of those amazing jugglers are doing very esoteric things that only jugglers can relate to. And even like for me, for example, I watch a lot of these new technical, crazy, weird jugglers, and it's really cool, but I kind of get bored with it after a while. Um, it's not necessarily entertaining. It's fun. It's cool. It's amazing. But is it really that entertaining? I don't know. Maybe for two minutes or so it is, or if you're really into technical juggling, it's, it's entertaining. Like I love all that stuff, but... But is that the purpose anymore even? I mean... 
when I was coming up in the 80s, you saw basically people's acts. Like that's what you saw like when you watch videotapes. Now you have a lot of people who don't consider themselves performers. It's more of almost a sharing mentality. It's not even to say maybe entertainment as much as look where I've taken this art form. Yeah, I think that's the majority of jugglers these days. You get all these guys posting up their videos of these crazy, insane tricks, and that's that's totally cool. If you compare how many really great technical jugglers are there are out there and then see how many of them are actually making a living, I think there's a, a big gap there. I think that, like, you know, how many of those guys are actually making their living juggling and how are they translating that to where people can act are actually enjoying that and... and in paying them, wanting to pay them to do it. I don't know, like, you know, people like Wes and uh, Tony Pezzo, those guys who are doing very weird, esoteric, almost avant-garde stuff are making their living at it, but they're hanging out in Europe. And I think in Europe, they're a little bit more open to that kind of thing than the United States. I think the United States has more of a, like, um, make me laugh or what is really entertaining about this rather than appreciating it for the art value well a lot of people seem to perform at festivals nowadays too which was something that we really didn't do before you would go to a festival but no one ever was paid or made that part of what they what their career was and now it seems like you have people who maybe aren't making money per se as much as they're using it for sort of a adventure travel yeah and that's cool too i mean uh if you can get the f festivals to fly you around the world sure to perform, that's awesome why not I think that's, if you're not making your living at it, that's a good way to get something out of it. I mean, the festival thing is, is a blast, no doubt about it. It's really fun. It's always a thrill to be invited to a festival because for me, what I do is fairly esoteric as far as my technical skills. And really, the people that appreciate it the most are jugglers if I'm going, you know, on my highest technical level. The average person on the on the street or out in the general public doesn't understand the level of uh, work I've put in for even just the more simple things that I do. So, but the juggler, the juggling community does, and so it's always nice to be appreciated by your peers. And I mean, a lot of people are just juggling for other jugglers, which is totally cool. You know, I mean, it's a community, and that's who appreciates it the most. But it's also like I like to kind of translate it to where how can I what am I doing and how can the somebody who has no real context for this how can they be entertained as well? Well, you kind of came from a field where you had a, a, a not a profession so to speak, but a sort of a a chosen activity that you put a lot of time into. But then once again, the idea of making money off of it was very difficult because you came up through through footbag. So before before juggling, you would have called yourself a footbagger. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're if you want to compare the obscurity of being a footbagger to a juggler, being a footbagger is way more obscure. It's way harder to make money with a hacky sack than it is juggling, which is one I don't know, not necessarily one of the reasons I became a juggler. I mean, I've always had a love of all kind of object manipulation and um I think for me becoming a juggler was just sort of the next step in my progression where I got to a really high level with my feet and I thought, well, if I, and I learned with my feet before my hands. So like, well, if I can do this with my feet, I should be able to do this with my hands. Yeah. The footbag thing was where I got my start and uh, it was a great place to come up. It was great. And it was a even smaller, tighter community. And it really, the only people that appreciated 
what I did when I started were 20 other people in the world or something. It was at such a high technical level, but so obscure and so esoteric that like nobody could get it except other footbaggers. Are there any professional opportunities or is it pretty much just a, an amateur activity? There's competitions. The, the world championships is still going on uh, for footbag. However, there's nobody making their living doing footbag that isn't doing something else to, to um, supplement that on some level. There's nobody paying big money to footbaggers at the moment. Now, footbag has been around a long time. Like juggling's been around a long time. They both had a competitive side to them. Why do you think that some activities take off competitively and other ones, such as juggling and footbag, as far as at least the competitive side of it, have stayed pretty obscure? I think it, those, those activities attract a certain type of person, and the amount of practice is just incredible. The level of the general public to relate to those activities is very low. Right. Not a good combo. Yeah, it's not. It's just not a good combo. I mean, yeah, it's hard to learn and we don't get it. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, I don't understand this. I don't want to put 10 years into learning these weird little skills. So well, I, everyone's thrown a football or. Right. Uh, There's like no score. There's like no. What's the purpose of it? Where does it end? How do we determine a winner? Yeah, there's no real winners or losers. There's no cut and dry sort of ending to that. So I think it's really hard for the general public to relate to. I think it does kind of attract a certain type of person. That that type of person is very much of a minority in, in general society. So I think those those are kind of doomed in that way to always be obscure. But to me, you know, to be honest, that's part of the charm of all this is that we're doing something so different than 99.9% .9 of the rest of the people in the world. And it makes us unique. It makes, and, and that, to me, is really cool. And the community that comes up around it is, is much tighter. I think it can, create, it can create deeper friendships that way. Like if we were competing in some, even something like, uh, like my first love was skateboarding, which is also a very alternative sport. But I think the general public can relate a little bit better to that. And, and I broke my arm. Like I started skateboarding when I was 11 years old and I was getting really deeply seriously into it, riding half pipes and stuff like that. And I, I broke my arm a few times. And had I not broke my arm, I probably would have gone on to become a professional skateboarder or at least tried. I'm really glad I didn't because, I don't know, just the way my life has, has come about, it's been more interesting. I've met so much good friends in the small communities that I've been a part of rather than the bigger kind of more competitive, bigger communities. And maybe it would have made more money or even had more fame or whatever else. I really wouldn't trade it. I really almost kind of like the obscure nature of these, these things. And the, uh, the idea that I broke my arm a few times, not something you really hear in juggling a lot as sort of a common, yeah. oh, I broke my arm a few times. And after that third time, I, I decided to give it a pass. Yeah, usually that would end your career in juggling if you broke it. But that's kind of what started my career in juggling, ironically. So were you in uh, skateboarding before you got into footbag? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I was my dad gave me a footbag when I was 11, 10, 11 years old because I was playing soccer. I had the hacky sack. It was early 80s, and it was just when hacky sack was sort of getting its popularity. I think the popularity of hacky sack peaked in the late 80s or early 90s, but right. it, was just, it was just starting to get popular. I kind of, I had let that hacky sack sit around for a while, didn't do much with it, 
I got really into skateboarding. That was definitely my thing. I broke my arm, and then uh, I got my cast off. I jumped back right back on my skateboard, right onto ramps again. I broke my arm again almost a year to the day that I broke it the first time. And I was like, at this point, I was maybe 15 years old, and my parents were like, dude, your skateboard <laughs> career is over, man. I had to have surgery on my arm. like uh. I had metal plates and all that stuff right, right. So they're like you got to find something else to do man i had a cast on my arm and i'm sitting around and i think the skateboard in itself kind of teaches foot eye coordination on some levels and i had been playing soccer before that so that combined with some weird natural ability that i might have had i picked up the hacky sack because like my arm was incapacitated. I couldn't really do anything with my arms. I was left-handed and I broke my left arm. So I was sort of right. stuck. I could I could play with my feet. So I started kicking that hacky sack around when I, with a cast on and, and immediately got obsessed. And from there on out, it, that was just it. I, I just kind of like let my skateboarding thing go and just got completely into the hacky sack. And I found that I had a natural ability for it. And I just started kicking that hacky sack every day and challenging myself to see how many times in a row I could kick it. At that point, I didn't really know what you could do with a hacky sack except kick it. I didn't really think that there was anything you could do with it but kick it. So that's, But I liked to kick it. And I had a couple uh, buddies of mine who were into it as well. So we just started playing every day and started pushing ourselves to see how many times in a row we could kick it. And it wasn't long before I was kicking it thousands of times in a row. I, I think I got up to like 5,000 kicks before I realized that there are actually competitions for this thing. And then uh, I was, you know, I was growing up in Virginia. I had no real knowledge of any of this stuff, but uh, I heard about a competition in New Jersey or something. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go crush these people. <laughs> okay. Nobody else in the world can kick it 5,000 times, right? Like, I'm definitely got to be the best at this. And so I was, I think, 15 years old or something. I begged my parents to drive me eight hours up to New Jersey so I could go dominate this competition. I walked up on the competition. I got there, uh, you know, super confident. I walked up to that competition, and the first thing I saw was a guy. He kicked it two or three times in a row. He kicked it up with his right foot. He went around it twice, circled it twice with his foot, and kicked it again. And, like, my whole world came crashing <laughs> It was just like, oh my god! But uh, that was kind of the start of my real obsession when I when I saw what the freestyle aspect, what you could do, all the kind of tricks you could do with it. And I was already so solid in my my basic control of it that learning those tricks was really easy. I think that was one one thing that gave me an advantage in in the beginning of my career is that I mastered the basics so thoroughly that the foundation I had was just uh, it was really easy for me to progress quickly. So once I got wind of what what you could do with a hacky sack, it was that was it, man. I was just totally obsessed. Like that's all I really carried about in life for many years was that. And so I just started training and um, obsessively learned every single trick and studied every player out there, went to as many tournaments as I could. Then I I was so dedicated to it. it just that's all I thought about, that's all I did. I was just totally obsessed. I I think I wanted it more than anyone else. So so I started winning tournaments. And what did, what did your parents do? Were they were they initially supportive? I know you said they drove you to this tournament, but uh, as a kid growing up, what, what were they doing and what did they see you doing with your life? Yeah, my parents were amazingly supportive. I got to really thank them for that. You know, my dad was the first one, one to give me a hacky sack. I don't think he really realized what I would do with it. Right. My dad is was um, 
a Navy SEAL, he's, he still teaches naval science in high school. When I was growing up, he was a pretty conservative type dude, but always really supportive. And yeah, he, my parents drove me up to my first couple tournaments. They were shockingly supportive of my unconventional interests. They always have been, and I think they always will be. Yeah, they were really actually, I think that they were just happy that I found something that I was really dedicated to. And um, my dad's really always been a really super disciplined guy and a very physical guy. And so he saw me kind of applying those principles, even though it was something a little differently that he would have done it. But I think he always appreciated it. I think he was, you know, when I started winning, especially when I won the world championships, I know like he was super proud of, of what I accomplished with it. So yeah, I got to be thankful for my parents for that. They never really told me to get a life and, and try to do something that I didn't want to do. The military was never an option. He ever wanted to follow his footsteps and become a, a Navy SEAL as well? Not for me, no, not at all. I think my brother toyed around with that idea a little bit more, but yeah, that wasn't even an option for me. I just didn't, it didn't really appeal to me at all. Uh, I was just more of an artistic type and I was into strange, weird interests and just, yeah, uh, kind of the opposite of that whole mentality. So how long between the time you went for your first competition to when you won your first world championship? Was that a, a few year period of you studying and training? How long did that take? It took me five years to win the world championships. So from the first time I went to a competition, it was 1986. I started practicing, you know, incessantly and studying VHS tapes of routines and that type of thing. Uh, it took me to 1989 was when I took first place in my first professional competition, which was East Coast Footbag Championships. And then in 1991, I won the world championships. So about 86 to 91, roughly about five-year period of just super intense practice. Well, this might seem like a very basic question, but you use the terms footbag and hacky sack kind of interchangeably. Is it basically the same thing or, or does one mean something different than the other? Yeah, that's actually a pretty good question. Technically, the sport is called footbag. And, you know, when I was involved in it, that's the only term I would use ever. I, it was always footbag. And I was like, really kind of like hardcore on that. And uh, it's footbag, it's footbag. <laughs> it's like pins versus clubs or something. Yeah. And hacky sack is the, uh, is a brand name for a footbag. So, but it was, it was sort of like you talk to the general public about footbag, they have no idea what you're talking about. Right. But if you say hacky sack, people still understand what you're saying. So for example, I still do a lot of footbagging in my show but I call it hacky sack because that's what the general public gotcha. can understand. Although I do explain in my show that hacky sack is a foot bag, but I still, I don't know. It's, it's funny. I've, I've almost sort of reverted back to calling the whole game hacky sack just because on a daily basis in my show and I'm talking to people, that's what, that's the phrase I use now. So right. I guess that's why I switch back and forth, but technically the sport is called foot bag. And a lot of the footback players have nicknames. That's something you really don't see in juggling. You have a very good nickname yourself. Can you tell us your nickname and, and how that came about? Who, who gave you that moniker? When I was killing it in competitions, my, my nickname was The Executioner. Cool nickname. Uh, not bad, right? Not bad. I was given that by um, the inventor of, of footbag freestyle, who is a, a, one of my big heroes, a gentleman by the name of Kenny Schultz. Mm -hmm. 
which all even all jugglers should know that name. Kenny I know Kenny Schultz. Yeah. Yeah, I know you know him. He is the all-time greatest footbag player in in all disciplines. He really he was the architect of all the tricks of footbag freestyle. He invented all the basics. Um, he really kind of set the tone of what the sport became. He gave me that nickname because um, of I was really the first player in the game to do, to be doing perfect routines without dropping the foot bag. My execution of my routines right. was the best. So that's kind of where he came up with that. Before that, the standard, I think before I came in, the standard was uh, people were dropping a lot. You know, people would go out and do a, do their act and it you'd see people dropping the bag. And um, I don't know, I just wasn't into that. I really wanted to perfect the art of doing a routine perfectly without dropping, without being sloppy. Well, you see that transition a lot. You see that now in uh, Kendama, where Kendama used to seem like they would they would miss a lot, like they would try a trick. Of course, it's you know, on a string, so it's not going to fall. Yeah. But it just seemed like, I don't care if I miss, I'm going to try to get the raddest trick. But they would miss 20, 30, 40 times. And so it was hard to watch as kind of a, an activity. But now they're getting to this place where they're flowing from one trick to the other. So they're having more of these perfect routines. So when you came around, you sort of said like, oh, this dropping is bogus. Yeah, yeah. That was, I kind of want to set a higher standard for that. And like, I don't know about you, but I, I find it really painful to watch someone drop tricks over and over again. And especially if it's in a, a public performance, that's just like. Well, I always say that dropping is sort of like falling and ice skating. That, that I, you know, I'm working, uh, you know, I'm the festival director next year in, in the IGA. I really like the individual prop competitions that I had started years ago uh, because, there's the, first of all, they're shorter. Like you give someone 90 seconds and you say, well, you shouldn't drop in 90 seconds. You give someone seven minutes or eight minutes, that's a long time to go without dropping. That's having an ice skater saying, can you do a four or five minute routine? It, it's a long go. Yeah, seven minutes is huge. Yeah. It's like a lifetime on stage. Uh, how long were the, the, the footbag uh, routines? Footbag routines were two minutes. Two minutes. That's a long time to play footbag, though. It is. It's especially at the high cardio level, at at a professional, world class level. It's it's super intense. And I mean, I think even now people are talking about maybe that it's even too long. Maybe ninety seconds would be better. At the end of a two minute footbag routine, man, you are whooped, and the cardio level's huge. And yeah, even you know, I think I think it would be better maybe if it was shorter because it's really dense. It's a very dense technical thing. Well, I'm looking at the individual props. I'm thinking 90 seconds. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Sounds um, good. I'll have, to, I'll have to work on that. Did you win five in a row, or, or how did you win your five championships, your world championships? I won three in a row. So once I won, I won again. And um, the only person that had won two in a row was Kenny Schultz. And then the year after that, I won three in a row. I was the first person to do that. The year after that, I didn't win the singles competition, but I did win the team competition. And then I came back and then won the singles competition again after that. So I won five total singles and one team competition. I was in the, um, it was in the finals of the world championships 15 years in a row. And I took five, uh, top five every single year, which as far as I know, no one's done that. So, um, it's impressive. Yeah. It's not a bad career, you know? And I, um, retired for footbag competition with most of my powers still intact hmm. i think i took fourth place the year i retired but uh top five every year so so you're still relevant but you decided to make some transitions 
how do you support yourself during this time? Were there any professional opportunities? Did you do any, any school tours or anything like that with the footbag? Yeah, as a matter of fact, that's kind of um, that was sort of my entryway into performance in general. When I really started making a living at it, I started doing a school assembly show tours. And so a friend of mine, who you may know, Scott Clear. Yep. I think you know Scott. He was doing Creative Athletics was the name of his company. Creative Athletics. Old buddy of mine from Footbag. Once I started winning, winning world championships, he offered me a gig doing school shows with Creative Athletics. So that was really the first time I started doing actual shows for more than two minute acts or whatever. I started. Is that like a tour? How'd that, how'd that work? Yeah, that was a, that was a tour. That was about a year, a school year worth of tours, mostly on the East coast and the Midwest, pretty intensive three, four or five shows a day. Sometimes right. five days a week for an entire school year. Once that was over, uh, I had already, my, my first juggling partner, legendary Tim Kelly. Tim Kelly and I were good buddies through Footbag, but we were learning how to juggle at the same time. We had been talking about doing a team act together because we were both really good at Footbag and we were both really excited to juggle. And so we're like, well, hey, man, let's get together and let's put together a team act. And so I went out on the road with Creative Athletics and... During that time, Tim moved to San Francisco and scored a really sweet apartment where he still lives today, yep, yep. years later. And uh, in the middle of the tour, he calls me up and he's like, look, man, when you're done, I got us a place. I got a room waiting for you and come on out. We'll start this thing up. So that's what I did. Saved up the money that I made on Creative Athletics, moved out to the Bay Area, moved in with Tim, and we just started out on the street. Luckily, we had we met some really amazing influential people like a guy named Daniel Holtzman who really helped us out in our career and uh, I think the mid like or mid 90s in in the bay area was a pretty cool time and place to be so that's sort of where my my juggling career sort of took off yeah you guys were the we tried you guys were the fair weather jugglers the fair weather jugglers yeah <laughs> yeah you know it was difficult it was a difficult transitional time i mean you were still finding your feet as a performer and as a person, as a juggler. But you guys were together for a couple of years and, and did a lot of shows, especially at the pier. Uh, did you like working with a partner? Was that something that was good for you? Yeah, especially in the beginning of my career, I really enjoyed it. If you're just starting out and uh, you're just in the beginning of your career and you're learning, I think it's really good to have a partner. There's aspects that are not so good, but uh, to ha kind of have that support system where especially if you're you're both really motivated it's good to have a practice partner and it's good to have someone to bounce ideas off of and try new things with and in a team act i'm sure you know that there's i think there's a lot maybe a lot more that you can do with a partner than you can in a solo act maybe maybe not but at least in the beginning it seems like there's more possibilities it's more fun to have a friend if you're getting along that is right. That camaraderie is really good. And so I did enjoy doing a team act, at least in the beginning of my career, for sure. Well, you guys were good friends first and you got, you had a good show together, but you know, sometimes it's hard to maintain uh, financially, creatively, and you guys both struck up on your own. Now, Tim is doing quite well. He, he's now with another team uh, doing mostly cruise ship wild and James wild and James. Yeah. Yeah. So he's doing well. And then you went off on your own and you had some of your own adventures. One of my favorites was this, uh, 
this show, I think I might have suggested you didn't take it, but you took it anyways, was with a Samoan circus. Was that, was that after the Tim thing? Did you, when did you get this Samoan circus gig? Yeah, that was quite far after the Tim thing. I, it was uh, on paper. It was <laughs> everything about it was, you know, maybe not necessarily the best decision to take it. But it sounded exotic, though. I had told you I'd been to Samoa. Yeah. And I didn't like Samoa. But you're like, but it's the Samoan circus. Yeah. You know, it was an adventure. I took it for the adventure. Um, sure. And to this day, I think it, I'm so glad I took it. In some, in some ways, it was a traumatic experience. And uh, it kind of crashed and burned. It was horrible and, and on some levels. It was one of those crazy, crazy, amazing adventures that, like, at the end of my life, it's it's like I will look back on it very fondly. Well, how long was it supposed to be? I mean, it was uh, quite a long thing. It didn't turn out to be quite that long. No, it wasn't very long at all. I mean, originally it was like a, uh, I think it was even just a two-month thing. And then when I got there, you know, they were like, if you like this, we've got, we're going to go to Tahiti next. And that's another two months. And then after that, we're going to go here and here. And then so in the beginning, they're like, yeah, this could be six months to a year, or we'll see how long this goes. Really, it only ended up being like a month. There was a whole crazy story around it, and which I probably just write a book about this because... It turned out to be quite grueling. I remember that the, they had you like sleeping on concrete or... Yeah. And changing in a porta potty. Yeah, yeah. I was showering in porta potties. It was it was fascinating. You know, we we're in the South Pacific. It was like you would imagine the circus in the twenties to be nineteen twenties to be or something like right. It's living in shipping crates, and um, you know everyone is like all. The, it was a crew of like thirty Samoans, and they did everything. Like they they built the bleachers. They were hand painting signs for the sponsors. They were. Um, they stitched the the tent, you know, they would do the repairs on the tent. They cooked, they performed the show, they did everything. And the owner of the circus was uh, this 350 pound bald guy from West Virginia, who was one of only three Westerners in Samoan history to be initiated as a high chief in Samoan culture. So he had full body tattoos, full traditional Samoan tattoos and like, Super intimidating dude, you know. <laughs> right, right. And really treated his crew really, really badly. It was like it. It was astounding. Some of the stuff I saw, how he treated the crew. I could go into details. What was what was your job like? So you were going out just doing your act, or what was your? Yeah, I did like my eight minutes hands and feet juggling act. He found me through my on YouTube on my YouTube video. Dropped me a note. And was like, look, I know this is last minute, but I need a juggler for my circus. And uh, are you available in three weeks to be in the South Pacific? And <laughs> right, right. I was like, yeah, what the hell, man? I got just here doing my thing. I think I was, um, I was actually doing some shows at Pier 39 at the time. I didn't have any big gigs I was doing, and I wasn't making a lot of money anyways. I wasn't really being offered any money, but... It was one of those things. It was like sure. Samoan circus. Yeah, man, let's do this. You know, I'm always up for an adventure and um, I'm a pretty spontaneous guy. I'm pretty flexible. And so if a good adventure comes my way, it's like hard for me to turn it down. So I went for it. Three weeks later, I was in the South Pacific sleeping on concrete. And um, but it was great. It was fascinating. You know, I met I was able to work in a traditional big top circus, which I was the only 
footbag player to ever do that in history. And really, how many jugglers can say that they do that these days? Not really that many. Sure, work, work a traditional circus type of show? Yeah, there's just not that many gigs out there like that anymore. But it was a really uh, just a, a fascinating view into a, a slice of life that's sort of a dying thing in this day and age to, to do it the way that they were doing it, where they, they hand-stitched their circus tent and people are living in shipping crates. There was Chinese acrobats. There was South American Brazilian trapeze artists. There was a sideshow artist from India. There was all, all these fascinating people from all over the world. I was having four-hour conversations with the Chinese acrobats over Google Translate. It was just a really fun, cool, crazy experience. The details, all the details were really fascinating as one of the richest, richest memories of my life, really. Well, sometimes the hardest gigs are the most memorable. You had another gig that didn't sound quite as hard. It sounded pretty interesting, though. You were a double uh, for Adam Sandler. In one of his movies, he, he should demonstrate some quite superior foot-bagging skills. But that's not Adam Sandler, is it? That's actually Peter Irish in Don't Mess with the Zohan. <laughs> yeah, it was a stunt double for Adam Sandler. That was a fun gig. That was the only movie I ever worked on. It was a totally cool experience. I would totally do it again if any any of you producers out there need it. <laughs> right, right, right. My many producer drop everything listeners. Yeah, yeah. You never uh, know. You never know. Adam was really cool. He was a good, good guy, and, and, and uh, it was fun to work on a you know set of a of a movie just see how it was done be back there in the in the uh, behind the scenes sure it's a long day isn't it making movies it's a long day it's a long hard day yeah you're sitting around most of the time and uh and i was just in makeup and uh, a wig and all this you know i look like adam sandler at the time right but it was really fun that was a really cool experience one of the yeah one of the more fun gigs i did in my footbag career what is the kind of gigs you get to do that goes from the the samoan circus to a a movie set, that's the kind of life we have, the, the the varied types of gigs we get to perform. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the, this, this lifestyle offers you all kinds of crazy possibilities, and it, there's more adventures than there, there aren't. So, I mean, that's one of the things that, that really uh, attracted me to the lifestyle to begin with and just kind of keeps me going. It's, it's, it is an adventure. It, it never really gets boring. You're, you're doing what you love to do, and you're, you know, sometimes you're traveling all over the world to do it, and you're meeting crazy people, and you're, you know, you're doing crazy things. So, you're not a bad way to go. And what are, I know you have some interests outside of, of juggling. We talked a little bit about your martial arts interest, but also you're working on a book, a book of artwork. What kind of artwork can you do, and when can we expect to see a, a book from Peter Irish? Well, the book is pretty well done. You know, it's um, it's a, it's, it's kind of hard to explain what the book's about. It's it's all artwork. It's over a hundred pages of original art that kind of tells a story, but it's all in images. It's not. There's no real. Um, Would you call it a graphic novel or or graphic novel in a way? Yeah. Is this hand drawn by Peter Irish? It's all hand drawn by Peter. Oh man, Irish. I, I want to see one. Yeah, well, it's at, it's at my uh, my graphic designer right now. Cool. Is, is formatting it. It's he's cleaning up some of the artwork needs to be edited and cleaned up a little bit, but it's all scanned in. It's over a hundred pages of, of original art pieces, and I think I worked on it from about I did most of the content from 2004 to 2012. So it was about eight years of my life of um, nice. Of work, yeah, it was a long-term project that sort of 
just like I've always done artwork since I was a kid. I was never too serious about it, but it was something that I started and it was kind of a cool thing. And I kept just kind of kept doing it in my spare time. And then it sort of took on a momentum of, of its own. And, and I was like, okay, well, this is kind of cool. I'm just going to keep doing it, keep doing it. And then uh, at one point I figured it was done and it kind of sat around for a long time. And I always thought in the back of my mind, I'm like kind of make a cool book. So I just kind of got motivated to actually make it a book. And what I'm doing now is I'm probably going to self-publish it. You know, I might throw it out there to some publishers just to see what. I think self-publishing is the way to go now, Pete. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's unique. It's it's something different that there's not really anything else out there like it. And so at the very least, uh, you know, I'll put it together myself. And it's sort of like one of those uh, do-it-yourself art projects. And uh, But it's, it's been a really fun process and um i'm a big fan of books in general so to to create my own book is sort of like a, a fun goal that i always wanted to do so um it's getting close it's really getting close i think within about a month i think it should be 100 percent done and then i can figure out how i want to publish it nice man i look forward to it i'm sure it'll be great As, uh, you'll get a copy for sure dan oh well, thank you very much i will i look forward to it Hey, we're getting towards the end of our time together, Pete. But uh, so, what is what does next year look like? I mean, uh, you've, you've competed at the IGA, you've performed at the IGA. Any chances of uh, you seeing you in uh, Cedar Rapids? I'm going to do my best. I got a lot of a lot of possibilities coming up in the future. Um, I'm really excited about certain aspects of my performing career. You know, my um, it was really an honor to be at the Cascade of Stars at the IGA last year to do my my six minutes of hands and feet juggling and Getting a lot of feedback from that sparked a lot of creativity of where I want to take that act. So I got a lot of really cool ideas that I'm working with now to kind of take my my six minute uh, original act to the next level and on many levels. There's a lot of cool things. Um, my buddy Jordan Moyer is uh, really killing it with his hands and feet type things. And for many years, we've been talking about joining forces to create a team act and so we've got a little bit of a foundation already towards that. And uh, hopefully this year I'll be working with Jordan. We're going to give ourselves a couple years to put together an act. Nice. And I think the two of us can put together, you know, six to eight minutes of some seriously mind-blowing stuff. So those, I'm really excited about those possibilities. And uh, I'm always, always continuously working on my variety show, trying to be funnier, trying to be better. Yeah, really inspired in in, in my uh, performing life right now, and especially since you're going to be the uh, director of the IJA, I can't miss it. So I'm really going to do my best to be there. I'm really, I have faith that Dan Holtzman will make the IJA something that it's never been before. You've always been a big inspiration. You've been for the people that are listening now. Dan was a, a really crucial part of my career uh i really wouldn't be where i am now without dan's help and coaching over the years so um yeah i'm really excited i know i know your powers and um your creativity and so i'm i'm really psyched to see where you take the ija next and so i uh, wouldn't miss it hey thanks man well we'll hopefully see you out there i'll i'll do my best too to create an opportunity for you to come and join us it's difficult where i'm at now kind of uh, my dreams versus my budget yeah, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure that's a strange dichotomy to work out. But I know you'll make it work. You know, I, I know you and I have talked about some of the ideas that you had. And I know that 
I really appreciate that you're reaching out to the juggling community at, and asking what they would like to see. So I think I think there's going to be a new kind of a new energy toward IJA this year because um, I just because I know you so well, Dan. So like I'm 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 really excited. I'm I'm happy for you that you get the opportunity to do it, and, and um, I'm really excited to see what happens. Well, thanks, Pete. It's like I was telling you at the at the festival, it was really great to see you do so well in the show, to see how you're blossoming as a performer. I appreciate you taking the time to expressing your thoughts and ideas here on the podcast. We're all kind of on our own journey, you know, as jugglers. And I've always found your journey very interesting. Uh, the way you're approaching your life and career is something uh, I think that's uh, honorable. And I admire what you do. And I, I wish you the best. And I can't wait to see what you do moving forward. Well, thanks, Dan. And uh, the, the feeling is mutual. I've always had the highest level of respect for you and your career. And, and um, uh, you've always been one of my favorites, Raspini Brothers, greatest of the great. I always appreciated your friendship as well. So it's been an honor to chat with you here on the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. Well, thanks. A big thanks to the master of the hands and feet, Peter Irish. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Dan. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 38, my conversation with juggler Peter Irish. Let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, by going to juggle.org, finding out about their products, this great group of jugglers, and of course their yearly festival, which takes place July 10th through the 16th in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Also, thank me by visiting my personal coaching website, braindrizzles.com. You can also thank me by going to iTunes and leaving a five-star review. That would help and I would appreciate it. Now go out there, drop everything except when you're juggling.